Good morning. So as Dave said, my name's Holly and I'm the youth leader here at Three Counties Church. Now this morning we're continuing our series on practicing the way of Jesus. And two weeks ago, Tom spoke on the topic of community and what it means to be family. He spoke about the importance of investing in our community and committing to do life together. Because that's a vital element of becoming like Jesus. Now discipleship to Jesus is not a solo quest. But what happens when community is hard? What happens when you face conflict and confrontation? How do we as followers of Jesus handle conflict well? Well, that's the question that we're going to be tackling today. Now, as most of you might know, Tom and I recently moved into this area from Hornchurch. So for us, we're getting used to a new community and a new church family and figuring out for the first time what the Three Counties community is all about. Some of you, I'm sure, have been here for years and years, but others of you might be like Tom and I and have only just started. However long you've been part of the Three Counties community, or indeed any community, all of us will have faced part of the cycle of community. Now, the cycle starts with step one, idealism. You become part of a new church family and everything's amazing. Everyone's so friendly and they make such a big effort to get to know you. And you find out you have loads in common with these people. You love mountain biking, and guess what? They love it too. And all of a sudden, you're invited to join on their cycle group. You find yourself thinking, this is more like it. This is so much better than the other churches I've been to. This is my kind of community. But over time, some of that initial sparkle starts to fade. And you begin to find yourself at step two of the cycle disillusionment. You discover that actually some people in your church are kind of annoying. We all know those kinds of people that you dread asking how they are because you know you'll be there three hours later hearing about their countless issues and problems. Or perhaps it's that you're not new anymore and so all of those offers of invitations to lunch and one-on-one conversations have dried up because you're now part of the family. It's as if your eyes have been opened to the reality that this church isn't perfect either. And all of a sudden, that initial glow of belonging and excitement about being part of community has been somewhat soured. And you're left with the uncomfortable reality that community is hard work. So now you read stage three of the cycle. You're left with an option. Do you break away? Stop coming to small groups. Dash off at the end of a service to avoid being caught by the oversharer. Stop coming to church family events. Run whilst you still can. Get out of there and find a better community without any of those issues. Or you have another option. Do you learn to accept? Do you accept that every community out there, church family or not, will have niggles and irritants? Do you accept that you may actually be the cause of someone else's irritation? Accept that you may have traits that you're unaware of that make you just that little bit less than perfect. And accept that in community and in family, authenticity doesn't mean that everything is kittens and rainbows and blissful connection. But that actually, authentic community is about being real with each other, doing life together, sharing the highs and lows, building each other up, but also pulling each other up 
on things that we need to change in order to grow. The honest truth is that no community is perfect, and being involved in any community requires hard work and commitment. Now, Tom and I celebrated our first wedding anniversary in September, and ahead of our wedding, we did a marriage prep course. Now, we all know that planning a wedding is stressful enough. You have people left, right, and center asking your opinion on napkin colors. Do you want to say the traditional vows or make up your own? And now, have you considered that the food you've chosen may not go down with Aunt Doris, who's ever so particular? Now, if you weren't already tearing your hair out at this point, the marriage prep course is a sure way to add to the stress of the impending wedding. After a day of wedmen, why not sit down with your frazzled other half and discuss in great detail your opinions on finance, child-rearing, and domestic responsibilities? Over the course of the marriage prep course, Tom and I, like every other couple, were confronted by the uncomfortable reality that we didn't agree on everything. And that actually, our opinions on some of those key issues were wildly different. We had snapped out of idealism and were face to face with disillusionment. So we had a choice to make. Do we just break away and give up? After all, it seemed like it would take a lot of effort and compromise to find a good middle ground. Marriage suddenly seemed like hard work. Or do we accept each other, warts and all, and continue to invest in this relationship in the knowledge that the hard work and the sacrifices that we would make for one another would develop fruit in us both. You see, community is a lot like marriage. It's what you make it. If you're willing to put the effort in, to commit wholeheartedly, to forgive quickly and sacrifice willingly, then marriage, and likewise community, can be incredible. It can become a place where you're truly accepted, but loved too much to leave as you are. It can become a place where you're pushed to step out of your comfort zone and reach new heights. And it can become a place where you can reveal your pain and your hurts in the knowledge that togetherness can bring true healing. But that fruit only comes when you choose to accept. And when we learn that dealing with confrontation well is part of the growing process and part of becoming more like Jesus. Tom and I didn't get to our wedding day or through our first year of marriage by avoiding confrontation and brushing things under the carpet. We got there by dealing with confrontation and making changes that would bless the other person. Now, don't get me wrong. By no means have we got any of this sussed out. Sometimes it can feel like a game of snakes and ladders where one week you're acing it and you're on top and the next week you mess up and you end up falling down again. But it's through these seasons that we're learning how to be the best husband and wife that we can be. Community is what you make it, and confrontation comes with the territory. Now, I don't know about you, but I find Christian stereotypes so entertaining. There seems to be this impression that Jesus was this sweet, gentle man who wafted around rocking sandals and a great beard and was loved by everyone. It is such a misconception. Jesus was full of grace and love and kindness. Yes. But he also wasn't afraid of confrontation. Just look anywhere in the Gospels and read some of his encounters with people and you'll soon see that Jesus isn't afraid of confrontation. 
Think about the rich man in Matthew 19 who comes to Jesus and asks what he can do to have eternal life. Jesus challenges him to sell all of his possessions, give to the poor and follow him, for he will receive treasure in heaven. Or think about the woman at the well. Jesus meets this ostracized woman getting water in the middle of the day and tells her about this living water that will meet all of her needs. He shares the good news with her, but follows up by this challenging statement. John 4, verse 17. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. Whoa, what a zinger. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall in that conversation. The point is, in both instances, Jesus speaks to the individuals, asks about their lives, answers their questions, challenges an area of their life that has become a negative, and offers them the opportunity to follow him. And in both instances, the individuals have a choice to make. Accept the confrontation and make a change in order to bear fruit, Or break away and choose not to follow Jesus. For the rich man, the cost of giving up his wealth was too high a price. And so his life remained unchanged. Yet for the woman at the well, her life was transformed in an instance. John 4, verse 28 to 29. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Now, part of being a disciple, part of being an apprentice of Jesus, is understanding that fruitful confrontation is part of the process of being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing what Jesus did. So if that's the case, we need to learn how we can have fruitful confrontation in our community. So let's start by how not to do confrontation. Now, I've got to be honest, I don't really use any social media at all. I recognize that for some people it has value, but for me, I just found it was becoming a bit of a negative and a hindrance in my life. Despite all the positives of social media, I would argue that it's a good example of how not to do confrontation. All you have to do is look at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to see that social media has crippled our ability to do confrontation well. It has become a platform in which we can say anything we like to anyone because somehow the barrier of a screen disconnects us from the person we're communicating with. We feel that we can be as rude and frankly as brutal as we want because somehow it just doesn't feel as if you're talking to a human being. There's no way that we talk to a stranger face-to-face the way that we might on social media. On Facebook, Twitter and so on, we can bandy around words like racist, bigot, sexist and brandish people with a label with no thought for the consequence in fact in our new society we can make a judgment on someone based on a couple of uh, sentences that they've posted and brand them with a label that becomes almost impossible to shake off and once that label's out there there'll be thousands of others ready to jump on that post agreeing with and reinforcing that label with this terrible mob-like mentality Without us even really noticing, social media has dramatically shifted the way in which we operate as society. Where once our society was built on a culture of guilt and innocence, now our culture is built on um, shame and honour. The anthropologist Ruth Benedict says this, 
In a guilt culture, you know you are good or bad by what your conscience feels. In a shame culture, you know you are good or bad by what your community says about you, by whether it honours or excludes you. In a guilt culture, people sometimes feel that they do bad things. In a shame culture, social exclusion makes people feel that they are bad. Do you see the difference? Shame is powerful and it's crippling. Shame is inhibiting. It can make people say the right thing or act in the right way. But the motivation behind that is a deep-rooted fear that by sharing an opinion that society doesn't agree with that week, that we might find ourselves rejected, excluded and shamed. You see, the problem with this culture shift is that it leaves no room for conversation, honesty or the opportunity to do confrontation well. If someone says something we don't agree with, rather than talking about it calmly and in love, our reflex action is to jump on it, shut down their point and cast them aside. We give no opportunity for change or growth and instead write them off as a bad person topping off their exclusion from society with a healthy dollop of shame. And all this does is promote an elitist culture, which prides one viewpoint above another. It's built on nothing more than current popular opinion. It swings like a pendulum. One week you're on top, browbeating anyone that dares disagree with you. But before you know it, the tide has shifted, and you're on the receiving end of guilt, shame and rejection. Now, whether you use social media or not, I'm sure all of us will have experienced the peaks and troughs of this shame culture. So what does that tell us? It tells us that we can't look to our social norms as a way of doing confrontation well, because it just doesn't have the answer. Instead, the example that the Bible gives is startlingly different. Let's read Philippians 2 verses 1 to 8. Now I'm going to read this passage from the message because sometimes I just think it helps to hear things in our own common language. It says this, If you've gotten anything at all out of following Christ, if his love has made any difference in your life, if being in a community of the Spirit means anything to you, if you have a heart, if you care, then do me a favour, agree with each other, love each other, Be deep-spirited friends. Don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet-talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed by getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. Think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave, became human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death. And the worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. So it is from this place and this mindset that Jesus confronts people. It is with this heart that Jesus confronts the woman at the well about her relationships. 
It is with this heart that Jesus challenged the rich man to give up all of his possessions and give to the poor. It is with this heart that Jesus calls us, his disciples, to bring about fruitful confrontation in our community. The heart behind it is deep love and a desire to help someone grow for their benefit, not his own gain. Jesus didn't confront for the sake of it. It wasn't about scoring points, airing his frustrations, or making himself look better at the expense of others. It was about confronting someone in love in order to bring fruit in their life. At the heart of confrontation was immense grace, as demonstrated by this passage. So in order to do confrontation well, we need to get our heads around two really, really important things. The first thing we need to understand is our identity in Christ. You see, how you see yourself has a direct correlation to how you treat others. If you don't recognize the value in yourself, how will you see it in other people? God declares that when we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we get a whole new identity. It is incredible. I really encourage you to go and learn more about your new identity in Christ. But for now, let me just remind you of a couple of key aspects of it. God says that when we accept Jesus, we become children of God. John 1 verse 12. That there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8 verse 1. That nothing can separate us from the love of God. Romans 8 verse 39. And that our inheritance is eternal life. John 3 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God values you so much that he gave his very self in order to redeem your life. Just think about that for a moment. God values you so much that he gave his very self in order to redeem your life. We need to own our identity in Christ and let go of our past because if we truly understood the new identity we have in Jesus, we would live in the freedom and the security that that truth brings for us and see that in our brothers and sisters in Christ. Secondly, we need to understand that fruitful confrontation can only happen in an environment of grace. Now as Christians, I think we say the word grace all the time. To the point where perhaps it's become a bit over-familiar and we kind of forget about the impact that it has on our lives. The existence of grace means that there's a need for it. We have all messed up and we need redemption and grace. There's no getting around that fact. But do we understand the measure of grace that Christ has given us? Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. God has given us such an overflow of grace that we can approach the throne of God the judge with confidence, knowing that we will receive mercy and grace. That's huge. Our understanding of grace has to shift from just a word that we use to a living reality. Martin Luther said this. 
This grace of God is a very great, strong, mighty and active thing. It does not lie asleep in the soul. Grace hears, leads, drives, draws, changes, works all in man and lets itself be distinctly felt and experienced. It is hidden, but its works are evident. When we understand the depth of grace that the Lord has blessed us with, it should open our eyes to the fact that the playing field is now leveled because we all need grace, but we all have free access to it through Jesus Christ. Therefore, we're equals. We no longer have to go through the agonizing process of measuring ourselves up against each other to see if we're better or if we fall short. Because God's grace has placed us all on an equal footing. In a culture of grace, we shift from judgment and point scoring to acceptance and unity. And in that place, fruitful confrontation can flourish. So fruitful confrontation comes when we get our heads around those two things. Our identity in Christ and the immeasurable grace that has been given through Christ Jesus. Now as disciples of Jesus, it's our responsibility to put those things into practice, to own them. Because when we really understand what they mean for our lives, it will dramatically bless the lives of us, but also everyone in our community. Now we know that in life and in community, conflict is unavoidable. So as we draw to a close, I want to leave you with five practical questions to consider when trying to bring about fruitful confrontation. So just for a moment, picture the situation or the person that's been buzzing around your head for this entire talk. And then just consider these questions in light of it. So do you have the right? Has the person invited you to speak into their lives? Do you have the kind of relationship that you can challenge each other in love? And are they actually a follower of Jesus? Because if they're not yet a follower of Jesus, then they might not be ready to make those radical changes that we might expect from a follower of Jesus. Secondly, are you winning them in love? Is what you're sharing in their best interest? Is it bringing fruit in their life? Are you coming at this with the right motivation? Is it for their benefit or for your own? Third, are you being clear? Are you being authentic and honest with that person? Or are you sugarcoating the situation or even exaggerating it? Confrontation can be really awkward. So are you coming across in the way that you want to be heard? Four, do they understand that you care about them? Are you prepared to walk with them on this journey? Are you prepared to go the distance and stay in that person's life? It's no help to someone to drop a bombshell and then walk away. We need to be prepared to be with that person, both in the moment and in the weeks and months ahead. And finally, and most importantly, are you pointing them to Jesus? We're not the ones that bring the change. Jesus is. So are you helping that person to be with Jesus in order to become more like him? True heart change comes from encountering Jesus. And that's the kind of change that will last the distance and bear fruit. 
in community, we are going to counter confrontation. It's part and parcel of doing life together. But when that confrontation comes, let's remember what we've learned today. And let's deal with our conflicts in a way that actually bears fruit and blesses people, rather than shames and excludes them. Let's be the kind of community that overflows with grace, understands our identity in Christ, and who are deeply committed to learning together as we spend time with Jesus, become more like him, and do what he did. Why don't we pray together? Father God, I thank you that in community, we can muddle through the highs and lows together, and we can be accepted for who we are, the best and the worst of us. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you will help grow in each of us a heart that is loving and willing to care for each other, that puts aside those irritants and niggles and chooses to go the distance in that relationship. And so, Lord Jesus, I just pray right now, whoever was called to mind, whatever situation that's um, bubbling around our heads right now, Lord, that you will speak wisdom into that. Give us a heart full of your grace and help us to see our brothers and sisters as they are, Lord children of you equals and um, part of our family and part of our community and so lord i just pray that you will build in us a community that goes the distance and truly cares for one another in jesus name amen